Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's outstanding panel, joining us for a second weekly roundup is Al Cardenas. Al is a nationally recognized Cuban-American leader in law, business, and politics who served in the Reagan and H.W. Bush administrations. He's been recognized as one of the most influential people in Florida politics, and he's also a former chairman of the American Conservative Union and a two-term chairman of the Republican Party of Florida. Al was just on Politicology on July 28th to talk about the uprising in Cuba, which we'll link to in the show notes. Al, welcome back. Thank you. Great to be with you. Also returning to the roundup today is Lene Erickson. Lene is the senior vice president for the social policy and politics program at Third Way. Lene also served on President Obama's advisory council on faith-based and neighborhood partnerships. Lene, it's always good to have you back. So happy to be here on a busy week. Very busy week. On this week's roundup, the Senate voted to advance the roughly trillion-dollar bipartisan bill to rebuild our nation's crumbling infrastructure, the complicated dynamics facing that bill in the House, and Democrats' efforts to address climate change in the aftermath of a devastating report from the international scientific community. Texas Governor Abbott and Florida Governor DeSantis face explosive growth of COVID infections in their states after minimizing the virus's risk and obstructing mitigation efforts. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo resigns amid allegations of criminal sexual harassment, the political calculation made by the governor, and what this saga means for accountability. We'll hear from Lene and Al on the stories they're watching that will shape our politics in the near future. And finally, in our Politicology Plus segment, we'll talk about the My Pillow Guys Election Conspiracy Cyber Summit. You can become part of this growing community at politicology.com slash plus. Infrastructure week is finally actually here as the Senate voted 69 to 30 on Tuesday to pass a trillion dollar bill aimed at rebuilding and updating our nation's roads, bridges, airports, railways, power grid, and a number of other key projects with the support of all 50 Democrats and 19 Republican senators, including the minority leader himself, Mitch McConnell. This bill's passage through the Senate was the culmination of months of painstaking negotiations between the White House and a bipartisan group of senators, and it now faces a number of hurdles in the House before it can reach the president's desk. On the periphery of negotiations was the knowledge that Democrats are planning about $3.5 trillion of additional spending on President Biden's agenda they hope to pass without Republican support and Immediately upon the bipartisan bill's passage, this additional spending came to the forefront. Now, the House is set to come back from their August recess early on August 23rd to consider both the infrastructure bill and the additional spending package, assuming the Senate moves forward quickly on the latter piece, which is not a given considering all 50 Democratic senators have to be in lockstep, and not to mention the requirement for the Senate parliamentarian's blessing on anything that passes through the reconciliation process. So, Lene, why don't we start with you? Can you just break down the dynamics here, set the table for us, help us understand what Nancy Pelosi has to consider as she chooses how and when to bring the infrastructure bill to a vote, and who's going to blink first, the moderates or the progressives? Well, first, let's just take a moment to like hang a mission accomplishment because <laughs> the last time somebody got 69 votes in the Senate for anything other than naming a post office 
was like a decade ago. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I I was thinking about I you know in 2013 we got I think 72 on the immigration reform bill. That's the last time that the Senate has functioned as it is intended to function, and it did this week. So I'm so excited. I hope everyone is as excited about Infrastructure Week as I am. Um, and you know now the question is how do we move these two bills forward? We've gotten through the Senate, which is usually the hardest part, but because these two bills are kind of linked together in people's minds, there is a delicate dance now that we have to do in the House to get these through. The moderates in the Democratic caucus are saying, uh, we want to vote on the bipartisan bill right now. This is what we want to run on. Uh, you know, I'm I'm in a swing district in the suburbs. I'm going to say bipartisan infrastructure bill all day long in 2022. Uh, so just like, let me vote on that and, and we'll get it done. And then we can figure out this reconciliation thing. Uh, the Progressive Caucus has another idea. And they really want to make sure that the uh, bipartisan deal isn't the only thing that gets done. And they're afraid that some of these mods uh, might get spooked by another $3.5 trillion in spending after they pass that bipartisan bill. The bipartisan bill gives them lots of cover, right? If they can say Mitch McConnell voted for this too, <laughs> that's pretty good. So, uh, but they're, they're worried that the, that the moderates might pull back, might say we need to shrink the bill, um, might not get their priorities through. And so they're playing a little bit of a game of chicken, as you said. But I do think that um, the the moderates always win these battles mm. <laughs> because they have more leverage. They The, the liberals are not going to vote against a bunch of spending just because it's not enough spending. They're not going to vote against, you know, a bill that has a huge amount of uh, investment for their districts and for things they care about, like climate change, uh, just because they actually want to have that be doubled or tripled or quadrupled. It would be really silly to do that. So I think they're posturing, but they don't actually really have a ton of cards to play. The moderates, on the other hand, can definitely walk away at any point. We've seen uh, Manchin and Cinema do that in the Senate at certain points. Uh, there's six that have already said, we want the bipartisan bill right now. And if you don't do that, we're going to be really angry. Uh, so we'll see how that dynamic continues to unfold yeah. over the next few weeks. Um, but Nancy Pelosi is a master strategist and um, and she's been able to do hard things before, including get the ACA passed in in these kind of conditions. So I would count on her to be able to navigate it. Al, given all of that, uh, how how are Republicans watching this tension play out between the the moderates and the progressives and the Democratic Party? And you know, it's, are they sort of just you know popping popcorn, waiting to see what happens, or is everybody? You think pretty much everybody agrees that you know the progressives are going to come home and get the job done? They're not going to. They may be posturing like they're holding this hostage, but but actually, you know, if they don't get everything they want, they're still going to vote for it. Well, two quick things. As a founder of No Labels, I'm very proud of the effort that we've had on the moderate side of creating these problem-solver caucuses in both the Senate and the House. Uh, I thought at first that in the Senate, we'd have five or six of these problem-solvers on the Republican side uh, be, be willing to vote on the infrastructure bill. But thanks to Donald Trump, it got to 19 because he mm -hmm. spent a lot of time uh, criticizing Minority Leader McConnell uh, in his own house and lobbying to defeat the bill. And with those two factors, McConnell was able to get 10 or 11 additional Republicans for it to be truly a bipartisan bill. Now you go to the House and talking about moderates, you have a caucus of about 50, 48 or 50 problem solvers, uh, moderates on both sides of the fence, who are going to have a lot to say about the reconciliation bill. And so I think Speaker Pelosi's biggest challenge is maintaining that $3.5 trillion number uh, because that number uh, is not comfortable for cinema and mansion in the, you know, in the Senate from a reconciliation standpoint. And it's not a comfortable number to a lot of these moderates. And so uh, she is bent on getting it done with that three and a half trillion because she's promised the progressives to come on, play ball, be with us. We need these two things passed, but don't, don't leverage one with the other. But if that three and a half trillion num dollar number starts going down in the Senate in order to 
Schumer get to 50 votes, 51 votes, uh, then we'll see what happens. I, I, you know, I'm an optimist. I hope the, I hope the, uh, infrastructure bill, uh, happens. Uh, I'm not very comfortable with the three and a half trillion dollar tag. Uh, although I understand, you know, pragmatically that something needs to happen on that end, but, but we'll see that the toughest challenge again is to get Manchin and Sim on the Senate to agree to a number. And uh, I don't think they've had their final say on that. And I think the moderate caucus in the House is also going to want to have a say on the $3.5 trillion package. And, uh, and uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi only has a few votes to spare to get that passed. So I I don't think we're there yet. I, I love the the uh, I love the cheerleading we've had with the passage of that infrastructure bill, but we've got a long ways to go. It's an excellent point you make, especially with regards to McConnell. I think it's really worth underscoring, Lene, the point you made about probably listeners of the podcast being habituated to the Senate being the place where things like this usually die, right? And yet, uh, it is it is rather remarkable that this is all coming down to really intra-party politics in the House. But to that point, I want to spend a little bit of time focusing on the climate change piece of this, because on Monday, the UN released a dire report warning of the accelerating climate emergency fueled by human activity. And the major takeaways from this report, according to NPR, are threefold. Humans are causing rapid warming around the world. Uh, extreme weather events are on the rise and only going to get worse. And third, if we cut emissions substantially, we can avoid the worst impacts. And the through line here is many Democrats feel the trillion dollar infrastructure bill doesn't go far enough, as you mentioned, to address climate change and that the massive investment in, in green infrastructure is urgently necessary. So how is this UN report changing the political calculus? Because it just came out, you know, forgetting either side of the infrastructure deal done. I'm not sure it really changes the political dynamic that much, given that, uh, you know, the left already knew that climate change was in a dire situation. um, And this report just uh, really solidified what they they already knew and believed. Um, And I don't believe that, you know, the far right folks that are climate deniers are really saying, oh, what did these scientists say in this report? Like, they're not the ones that are reading it and listening to it. Um, If they are um, on that far end of the spectrum, that isn't all Republicans. Republicans, obviously, but um, but the ones who you know have denied science and facts and lots of other things, insurrections over the last uh, few years. So um, you know, I do think though that the the fundamental problem that um, we're going to have to see really negotiated in the House is not um, that we have this one bill and then we have another bill that we can just add on to it, right? It's actually that Joe Biden has said to the Republicans who negotiated this first chunk of money that he's not going to go back and redo any of the things that are already in that bill. Mm. So that means if they've agreed to uh, a certain number of billion dollars for investment in electric vehicles, the second reconcil- the reconciliation bill, the partisan bill, isn't going to include more money for that thing. Uh. And that was kind of the thing that um, Biden used um, to keep the Republicans at the table because they were like, why are we agreeing to this two bill strategy? You know, our <laughs> Democrats yeah. have been clear that they're going to come back and, and pass a massive partisan bill. Why would they stay at the table if they thought, well, we're just going to get, you know, we're going to negotiate one thing and then they're going to go and do something completely different. So the way that Biden navigated that was to say, on the things that we agreed to that are part of bill number one, we will not readdress those in bill number Mm. two. So there are lots of things that will be in bill number two around climate, but that's really where the rub is in in things that have already been in the bipartisan bill. You can't go back and double or triple the funding that is in those programs. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for that window. Al, conservatives have been harping on the Green New Deal. I put that in air quotes for years, despite it never being really more than a white paper. Is Biden going to be able to sell massive spending on green initiatives to the American people? Or do you think that if this second bill doesn't, uh, you know, if it falls flat, if if it ends up faltering, is there any hope of getting anything related to addressing climate change done through Congress? Well, a, a couple of quick observations. Number one, climate change used to be a rallying cry for the Republican base. 
it no longer is being used mm-hmm, as one right. of the main tools by conservatives just because so many are already seeing the effects of of uh, of, of climate change and are bothered by it. And so you will see in social media and the and uh, and the, the paid uh, advertising, political advertising, climate change is not mentioned anymore. It used to be one of the top three topics that Republicans would use to rally the base no longer. I think there's an increasing number of Republicans who are uh, who are believers that climate change needs to be dealt with, that it's a true looming cha- uh, problem. And here in Florida, where I am, that's become a fairly conservative state, uh, rising t- rising seas, uh, uh, red uh, red algae problems. You know, we have uh, the increase in hurricanes and tropical storms. We have more than enough evidence that things are changing. The heat, you know, we're hitting record numbers. I think everyone, including Republicans, has noted that something needs to be done. And with regards to the third thing that you mentioned, Ron, regarding uh, mitigating the uh, mitigating the carbon dioxide problems. You know, it's the auto manufacturers that are taking, you know, giant leaps forward in uh, in creating electric cars. I've always said that that change uh, will happen as long as consumers and auto manufacturers also agree to move forward with it because, after all, the ultimate consumer has the final say on what rolls on the roads. What's interesting is that auto manufacturers have caught on to it they realize that the political climate's very risky uh, to go against uh, President Biden's uh, goals. And so, uh, you know, a number of car manufacturers have already said that they're going all electric. Uh, and so even the car I drive, the manufacturer says we're going all electric. And so you, you look around and uh, and that happens to be the case. Happens to be the case, especially with uh, foreign owners in Europe and uh, and uh, who who believe that you know in Germany and elsewhere that in Europe they're being just as cognizant of this problem and uh, and they're manufacturing cars not just for the US but for Europe as well so i i see consumers and manufacturers joining in the fray with regards to that i think climate change if it was a standalone bill you'd be surprised as to how much support it would have depending on the amount of the funding requested. So that's that's one area where I think we're making progress. It's on the rest of a package involving social issues that Republicans will take a stronger stand. Let me just jump in, Ron, on um, your point about selling it to the American people. Yeah. And I want to I want to just make a contrast. These bills are called uh, the American Jobs Plan and the American Families Plan. And Every talking point is jobs, 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 middle class tax cut, middle class tax cut, which everything is, is infrastructure. Everything is infrastructure and everything is about jobs and the economy. And that is what voters want to hear. They don't want to hear we're focused on climate change to the detriment of the economy and getting COVID under control and all these other things. And I think if you had a bill on the floor that was called like the, um, you know, the Obama era um, Waxman Markey bill, right? If you remember in the annals of history, the last time we tried to do a big climate change bill, it was called the American Clean Energy. Energy and Security Act. Well, that puts clean energy and climate as the front goal. And here Biden has very smartly, and the Democrats have learned from that because we got wiped out in the midterms afterwards, that we should actually make jobs and the economy the primary focus and then show how these climate um, initiatives and these investments in clean energy really contribute to helping our economy and, and creating more jobs. And I think, you know, Al's so right about the consumer piece. The most visible thing you've seen Biden do around climate change isn't some big speech about how the earth is warming. It's getting in those big trucks that are electric and driving around yeah. and showing how macho yeah. you can look yeah. in a super cool electric car because he realizes that um, if the demand is there, then uh, the supply will be there. And that's going to create a mutually reinforcing um, effort, both politically and socially across the country to say, you know, electric cars aren't just for like, you know, w- really fun liberals in the city, you can get your F-150 electric too and save money on gas. 
He's just so the Ford F one fifty could actually change the world. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> the electric Ford F one fifty. Those are those yeah. are smart comments. I yeah. you know, I I think you're right about putting on the, the job's title to it. Uh obviously uh Republicans are going to uh are going to challenge it based primarily on the uh, on the dollars issue. I mean, mm. the uh, all of the publicity I've seen so far and the speeches I've heard have to do with the national debt, have to do with three and a half trillion, attacking the bill for its immense uh, impact on the on on the national debt more so than its component parts. And and probably you're absolutely right when you you know when you're selling jobs, it's hard to go against jobs, and so your easiest target is national debt concern about you know inflation concern about a number of things but but republicans have attacked that bill on the periphery of the consequences rather than on the merits of the bill so i i think your comments are well taken i think that's so right okay on to america's favorite governors as we continue to watch the resurgence of covid-19 courtesy of our unvaccinated neighbors and the highly transmissible Delta variant, we want to take a look specifically at Texas and Florida and their apparently pro-COVID executives, Governor Greg Abbott and Governor Ron DeSantis. In Texas, which ranks in the bottom third of states in vaccinating its residents, dozens of hospitals are out of ICU beds with a number of beds available across the state dropping to a new pandemic record low. This week, the state postponed elective surgeries, and with Texas's healthcare system facing massive staff shortages, Governor Abbott directed the Texas Department of State Health Services to find additional medical staff from outside the state. Meanwhile, in Florida, the state has smashed its own case and hospitalization records from before vaccines were even available. The federal government is set to provide Florida with 200 additional ventilators, 100 breathing devices, and other supplies, although Governor DeSantis said he was unaware of the shipment requested by local and state health officials. Both governors aggressively reopened their states in the late spring and even worked to codify restrictions on lockdowns, mask mandates, and their ability to be enforced. In fact, both governors took steps to ban mask mandates in schools, and both are seeing defiant school districts buck those rules and implement mandates as parents nervously prepare to send their children and ineligible for vaccines back to school for another year. So we've been calling this new wave, as has President Biden, the pandemic of the unvaccinated now. Um, but, you know, maybe we should be calling it the pandemic of the negligent governors. Uh, Lene, how do we draw more attention to the failure of these governors to act and to protect the health of their own states. And I suppose, does drawing more attention actually help at this point, or is it really just feeding them? I mean, I, I would argue that it's mostly feeding them. What they want is attention. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Ron DeSantis wants coverage. He wants to be the foil for Joe Biden. He wants to run for president. That That's his entire abiding motivation from what I can see. And he is not super concerned about what that means for the health of anyone in Florida, um, as long as he can be well situated for a Republican primary in 2024, should Trump not run. And I just think, you know, calling more attention to him and his antics is feeding that beast. Um, and it's frustrating to watch because, you know, as you noted, um, these governors are asking for help from other states, from the federal government. Um, their their employees, at least, are asking for help because yeah. uh, and their hospitals are asking for help. And they're just completely tuned out. They are um, running a completely different game, which is about how many headlines can I get um, and how much can I I amp up the base and show how Trumpy I am. And that I think is is just political theater and should be disregarded at this point. You know, both Abbott and DeSantis have shown zero interest in keeping their states healthy and protecting folks that are there. Um, and so I think local and, and other officials, public health officials are going to have to step in and do the jobs that these governors clearly have decided that they don't want to do. So Al, Abbott and DeSantis, and while I certainly won't ask you to speak for either of them, they haven't been silent on the surges in their states, but they're both actually blaming Joe Biden's immigration policies as, as being responsible for the, for the Delta spike. And this just seems so disingenuous. And it also feeds into you know the xenophobic trope that immigrants carry disease. What, what would you say 
to the governors? How do you read this, uh, these governors blaming Joe Biden's border policies for the unfolding public health disasters in their own states? Oh, gosh, you know, as a, as a pro-immigrant uh, uh, advocate and activist, uh, which I am, I've been fighting very hard for immigration reform and cheer the fact that in the reconciliation bill, immigration relief is finally given to the DACA kids and, and to essential workers. And so, you know, after, and it seems like the only vehicle that, that can now pass through Congress regarding immigration reform, at least in this election cycle. So, you know, we've been, and I'm talking about the business side, we have an yeah. organization called ABIC made up primarily of Republican business people who are actually impacted by the short labor uh, circumstances. And so, uh, that I'm encouraged with. And so anytime I see immigrants being by line, m- me being an immigrant, I'm obviously very upset about that. But here's, you know, going a little bit deeper into this. Uh, I think the governors felt like, uh, you know, Florida and Texas weren't uh, that much different than other states in the past regarding the uh, the gun in the pandemic and that their policies allowed for the states to do better f- financially or economically. What uh, I think is a real scientific challenge is that the odds have changed. I think this new Delta variant in COVID is far more aggressive in terms of being able to contaminate people. And it's more aggressive, more so with children. And, you know, COVID used to be more of an adult issue in the past. But when you add children to the equation, it's going to be much more explosive emotionally. And now that schools are opening and, and their, you know, and, and, uh, and their penalties actually being proposed by the state to those local school boards that mandate, uh, mask coverage, uh, I think we're going to have a real problem. In Florida, every children, every children's hospital that, uh, has their ICU units already filled and have children actually on the hallways dealing with this uh, Delta variant. Never happened before. I mean, we never we never had ICUs in Florida and children's hospitals being, you know, uh, above capacity. But we are now, and schools haven't started. And, uh, you know, parents, uh, you know, there's those parents who don't believe in vaccine and don't believe in masks are, are a lo- loud voice, but I hear more and more concerned parents uh, they realize that we have uh, new ways to treat uh, to, to treat the COVID. That the chances of death have have fortunately uh, decreased. But when you're talking about a child getting COVID, regardless of how severe it is, you're talking about a whole different emotional range, and that's where we are now. And I think with school opening, you're going to see much more of it. How these governors react to it, we will see. But I don't know that anybody can withstand the pressure of, of children getting contaminated in greater degrees at, than uh, than we have now. And, uh, and I expect it's just a new variant, uh, not only of COVID, but it's a new variant politically of, uh, you know, of the weaknesses that we're facing by by siding with those who, who uh, don't want to be vaxxed or wear masks. That is such an excellent point. Lene. Uh, Al brings up this really good point, right? Millions of Americans are now getting ready to send their unvaccinated children to school unvaccinated because they can't get vaccinated yet. And in places like Texas and Florida, they really have no idea if their child's classmate tests positive. Uh, they won't know. You know, masks will be will not necessarily be required in the classroom. With the Delta changing our understanding of how young people are affected by the virus. What do you think the fallout's going to be from parents towards these governors? I, you know, Al, the way you put that, this is not just a new sort of disease variant. It's also a new political variant. It's, it's, I think that's really, it's a very poetic way to put it. Uh, Lene, how are you reading this? Is this maybe the first opportunity in a while for the winds to change for, um, for people to start changing their minds about vaccinations and masks when they start seeing children get sick and not be able to be treated? I mean, I certainly hope so. And I I totally agree that this is a change dynamic. I mean, the one thing that we all um, took for granted during the first round of all of this horrible 
pandemic has been that most children were okay. They weren't getting sick as often. Um, and when they did, they weren't getting as sick. And so we didn't have visions of um, little kids in the hospital not able to breathe. We were very concerned about our grandparents, our parents, the older people in our lives that we love. Thankfully, a lot of those folks have gotten vaccinated now. And so, uh, you know, a lot of us can breathe a sigh of relief about that. Um, but now we're worried about the, the other age spectrum that we care for in our homes. And that's a completely new thing to have to grapple with. Um, You know, I do think, though, that uh, a lot of this for the governors is just talk. And I I don't want to over-credit them because, um, you know, Ron DeSantis, for example came out big posturing, uh, we're going to punish any school that doesn't, you know, that requires people to wear masks. We're parents' decision in order to mask their child or not. Nobody should tell the the school that they have to wear masks. Well, actually, he kind of backtracked on that now. What he said is, okay, well, we're not taking state funding away from a school if you require masks. Oh, we're not taking state funding away from the teachers if you require masks. We're going to hold back the superintendent's salary. (laughs) And, you know, I wonder what that is. Like in Florida, I would guess the superintendent's salary is like probably, I don't know, maybe $80,000. Maybe Mm. Al has a better idea. It's not a ton of money. And so a lot of these superintendents have said, um, yeah, fine, do that. I'll figure out some other way to pay my bills. I'm going to keep the kids at my school safe because that's my job. Mm -hmm. And so I do think we've seen those local officials step up. Um, And the the whole thing is so silly because like how many times has Ron DeSantis or folks in, in his ilk talked about local control? You know, they got so excised about Common Core and about um, critical race theory and other things because they want local control for school districts. And then now they're coming in and saying, no, Whatever the local decision maker says is not right. They can't do it and I'm going to punish them. But then they're backtracking because they don't actually want these kids to get sick. They just want to look like they're doing something that helps their base. And then they're reducing the penalty to the point where the local officials are actually going to act in the public interest of their kids and say, you know, well, DeSantis, sorry, like keep my salary if you want. I'm not going to have dying kids or hospitalized kids on on my hands. Yeah. I think this has a lot to do with the grassroots fundraising machine. I, I think that's and, what it comes And the down 2024 to. Yeah. primary. I yeah. mean, once once people started saying his name as second to Trump in terms of um, you know, the his his chances in the 2024 primary, all of a sudden Ron DeSantis got all kinds of new ideas about things that he wanted to do that were even more terrible than his old ideas. And he's just gonna keep doing that and leapfrogging himself on horrible ideas um to stay in the news because it's working. His name idea is up. He is volunteered as the next in line after Trump with uh, Republican primary voters. And, uh, you know, if, if they used that straw poll right now, he would be their nominee. And so what what does he have to lose yeah. other than children dying in Florida? Well, we know that leadership matters and especially when leaders are brave enough to change their minds and admit that. And we saw the governor of Arkansas recently, Asa Hutchinson, uh, who was asked if he regretted signing a bill prohibiting mask mandates in certain areas. Uh, Let's listen to his response real quick. Well, I signed it at the time because our cases were at a very low point. Uh, I knew that it would be overridden by the legislature if I didn't sign it. And uh, I was not uh, supportive of, uh, I'd already uh, uh, eliminated our statewide mask mandate. And so, uh, you know, I signed it for those reasons that our cases were at a low point. Everything has changed now. And yes, in hindsight, I wish uh, that had not become law. So do you think we're going to see any more of the previously COVID denialist leaders on the right change their tune? Um, We've seen outbreaks uh, previously that, you know, public opinion shifts quickly uh, wherever folks are confronting a serious surge in the pandemic. So. You know, do you expect to see someone like DeSantis eventually say, you know what, I might have been wrong and we have to take this a little more seriously? Uh, well, we'll we'll see. The, uh, you know, walking things back is not, uh, it, you know, it's not a common thing in today's political environment. Asa Hutchinson is a special person. He's been a good friend for a long time. And what makes his comments that much more 
uh, you know, that, 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 that for us to appreciate his comments that much more is the fact that he's a governor of Arkansas. I always judge people not only by what they say, but who is their audience. And Asa Hutchinson speaks to a very complicated, conservative audience. And for him to make those statements in the midst of that reality is, in my opinion, deserves a little bit of an applause because that's a tough crowd to make that statement to. Uh, the one pet peeve that I have is that I hope the CDC gets to do a better job in communicating. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, clearly, they've been pounced on unfairly and massively uh, politically. And now, you know, Dr. Fauci and, uh, and, and the CDC have become uh, pawns of a political atmosphere. But, but I, I think they could have been a lot clearer in explaining why circumstances change and why their advice has to change from time to time. And I don't think they've done an adequate job doing that. I, I hope that, uh, they uh, contract somebody like Lane to teach them how to communicate because, you know, they could do, uh, those of us who, who believe in taking prudent measures would have a lot easier time communicating that if the CDC was clear and clear about how this is a moving target and how things change and how their advice has to change according to the new science, uh, you know, discoveries. But I just don't know that they've done a good enough job about that, but that's, you know, maybe that's my own personal peeve. Yeah, I, I, I definitely see that and hear where you're coming from. Um, I think the politics around uh, changing guidance as science changes really were infected by Donald Trump because right. we weren't trained as a country uh, to to follow the science as it emerged because there was a constant barrage rhetorical barrage against the scientists if ever anything any of that science was going to make him look bad personally and so we really had a year and a half uh we had a long time being exposed to um really the trump administration discrediting science and and i think we're still suffering from from that i totally agree clarity of information and uh and 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 the unification and a unified message are paramount here and and for so long we haven't had that and i think the 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 battle lines have already been drawn around that and and people are dug in um i you know ron i, yeah, I think ahead. you're totally Wanna... right i think you're totally right about the hangover effect yeah, because it's not just that it. science has been undermined but also that the cdc has been undermined that politics has been injected into all of this um, by the previous administration and so it means that the current administration is trying to look like they are as hands off as humanly possible and i think if the pandemic had started during a Biden administration, they wouldn't have to worry about that so much. They wouldn't have to worry about, oh, no, 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 we don't even talk to the CDC. Like when they, you know, when they uh, continue to try to emphasize how separate and apart our government is from the CDC um, and our elected officials are from the CDC, it means that they can't um, clearly communicate. They can't think about the public communications piece of this. They can't help um, uh, coordinate strategy um, and message because they're saying, oh, we don't even talk to those guys. And that's because they're trying to reestablish some trust that the CDC isn't being controlled by the White House. But it does, you know, have this then lag effect that like, wait, nobody's talking to each other. I want people to be talking to each other. It seems like maybe they should be, but they're trying to create a wall um, in order to get over this perception that the CDC is just a White House puppet. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when uh, towards the end of Trump's uh, administration, they uh, conservatives wanted to name the vaccine after Donald Trump. Remember that? <laughs> I mean, yeah. maybe, maybe we should yeah. have. Maybe we need a new one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. yeah. And uh, how things change, right? Yeah. We're going right. to call it make, make vaccines great again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we yeah. have one more governor to talk about on last week's roundup. We talked about New York Attorney General Letitia James's press conference where she announced the findings of a report that Governor Andrew Cuomo had committed state and federal crimes related to sexual harassment, even, uh, excuse me, against 11 women who came forward and shared their truth. What we got right was that Cuomo denied, deflected, and abdicated any personal responsibility for his actions. 
What we got wrong very clearly was that he actually resigned, which none of our panel thought was going to happen, announcing on Tuesday that his resignation would take effect in two weeks' time. Lene, in less than two weeks now, New York will have its first ever female governor when Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul succeeds him. And uh, we actually just found out Thursday that uh, Hochul plans to run in 2022 after completing Cuomo's term. So given that, uh, what needs to happen in these next two weeks and and afterwards to ensure a smooth transition and to allow New York to to turn the page? Uh, you know, I think maybe they need to smudge the governor's mansion. <laughs> said that like some yesterday. Sage, <laughs> some kind of ritual that's a cleaning of the spirits out of there or some. That's the primary thing. Kat, Kathy Hochul can come in and do the job, but we got to get, get all that of that bad out. news out out, out. That's the first priority. I mean, when you read that investigation report, it is so horrifying. And as you said, like, you know, I listened to the press conference. And if you took out the line that said, I'm resigning in two weeks, you would think he wasn't resigning. Like the whole thing was about how the it's you know, it's a witch hunt. He sounded like Donald Trump. It was crazy. And then he's like, oh, and by the way, I'm resigning. So I assume that that means it's because he knows he was about to be impeached because the leaders of the, um, you know, New York state legislature who are Democrats said as much. And he realizes that he can't run for office again if he gets impeached, but he can run for office again if he resigns. And C.E.G. Elliott Spitzer New Yorkers sometimes forget they, you know, Anthony Weiner tried to do a turnaround as well. And then, you know, he got himself in trouble again. But uh, there is a long history of horrifying, um, you know, sexual or other um, situations and scandals that then New York voters seem to forget about, you know, yay, 18 months later. So I think this was an act of political preservation and um, in the most Cuomo-esque fashion. Um, And, you know, at some point he'll just go back and redact that line about resigning and use the rest of the um, clip and keep playing it over and over and over again until he gets hired by MSNBC and then decides he's going to run for AG or something like that. This was not a person who was contrite. This was a person who decided politically, this is the best way for me to have a job after this. And, um, you know, and I think he's probably right about that. Um, and I, for one, hope that people's memories are a little longer than they were last time. Yeah. So uh, speaking of Cuomo's motives, MSNBC and clips, uh, uh, our friend and uh, former advisor to Governor Cuomo, Susan Del Percio, I think said this really well on MSNBC uh, yesterday during uh, Andrea Mitchell. We have a clip of this. I'd just like to go to his final press conference there as governor and say, what a what a disgraceful way of conducting yourself out the door. He basically had his lawyers discredit the investigators, discredit the media and discount the accusers. Then he went on the air and basically talked down to people, especially women, saying, it's just who I am. I'm sorry. That is unbelievable behavior and shows that he really has no remorse. He had no other choice but to move forward with resignation. As Ron and Tom have said, he had no allies anywhere. So this is what he had to do. When I was first listening to his attorney, I was like, why is she bringing a legal argument to a political fight? And then it turned out he knew he couldn't win that political fight. So Al, I think Susan nailed it as usual. He didn't take responsibility. He didn't apologize. He denied the wrongdoing. And he claimed he's stepping aside for the betterment of New York's ability to govern. Oh, and by the way, remember all the good things that I did while I was your governor. What what do you think his plan is here? Is he going to run again? Is he expecting people to forget? And what is it about New York that we keep they keep electing people like this? Well, first of all, you know, it's a bipartisan issue in New York. Uh, uh, if you if you if you think of Rudy Giuliani, <laughs> you'll understand that it's not only Democrats that that fall prey, but but I will say this, and and uh, you know I I agreed with everything you and Lene and Susan have said, but in reality, Democrats are a lot tougher on the issue of sexual harassment on their own than Republicans are. I mean, we we give a pass to a lot of people who are still in Congress who've had you know who who've had or issues. the White House. 
Yeah, or the White House. Exactly. Bingo. And so then, okay, look, Al Franken, you know, uh, to me, you know, I, demanding that Al Franken resign, given what's going on with a lot of office holders, was pretty remarkable for Democrats to have been that, that, that's staunch, you know, on the issue. And I, I don't blame them. I think we, we, we certainly want to move on from things that were accepted in the past that, that were not right. And so, uh, he should have resigned before all of this, before the noise got a lot louder, which would have served him a lot better. I don't think he would have resigned, frankly, if impeachment was not obvious. I mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, he, uh, you know, he's got that Cuomo, Mario Cuomo blood in him and, uh, and uh, and he he was probably pretty stubborn about it and thought maybe he could fight his way through it until the impeachment became obvious and then what else was he going to do? So uh, it's uh, it's interesting, but I think we've entered for all the right reasons a new era of not tolerating sexual harassment in the workplace and uh, as well as in politics, and and that's good. For far too long, a lot of people had to go through a lot of crap. That that now most most of that I hope will be eliminated by known consequences. At least Democrats have entered a new era of not tolerating. <laughs> C.E.G. Roy Moore. C.E.G. Uh, Roy Moore. <laughs> yeah, Roy Moore. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I think well, Al I, a, I thought I was fair. Yeah. yeah, yeah no, Al, yes. Al has a good point, yes. right? Al Franken yeah. is not Roy Moore, and. Um, yeah. Al Franken, you know, w- was pushed out. Um, and I think that was the right decision. We've got, I'm from Minnesota. I liked Al Franken, but we've got a great senator now in Tina Smith. And so, you know, there's there's no um, lack of fantastic people to take that spot. And the, um, the bar shouldn't be, are you Roy Moore in order to have to resign? And I think the most frustrating part to me, um, other than the lack of apology in, in Cuomo's statement, which, you know, he, he reminded me of like um that horrible um you know ex that you had that's like i'm sorry that you were offended oh uh, yeah i'm so Don't sorry apologize for my feelings, sir. felt s- sad about that i'm sorry that you felt something about that that was his apology so there's that but then he also he kept talking about changing standards right like oh well i guess i just haven't caught up with where the line is now if you read the report he's sticking his hand up people's shirts like this is not like oh i i guess i didn't realize it's not okay to say sweetie anymore like he was physically harassing people and that was not acceptable in any time that he was in in government. And I don't understand why he doesn't understand that this isn't like the, the standards have changed. Like he was so far across the line of those standards. He was doing the wrong thing in 1990, which was, a, a, you know, a very different standard. And still he would have failed it. Yeah. I mean, the thing that outrages me the most probably is, uh, you know, s- second to the actual offenses is these fast and furious retribution the culture of of fear that he created around him if anyone were to speak up or question him and that to me is you know that's a kind of thing that we should be able to spot in leaders if you don't know how someone's going to behave behind closed doors you can you can identify the characteristics of 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 you know that kind of behavior trumpian behavior um that that to me is is one of the worst elements of this um well, you know, the uh, there's always had been a skepticism on the part of some of folks who speak up 20 or 30 years later about harassment. Uh, in his case, of course, you know, to me, the, the, the ultimate offense was, you know, in the elevator groping his own security. Uh, yeah. His own security guard. I mean, I mean, to have the nerve or the sense of entitlement that you can actually grope a lady with a gun protecting you. I mean, to me, that was that was a sign that uh, this was like irreparable. Yeah. After he, <laughs> you know, after she was on his detail yeah. at his request. That, that's my point. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and I think to, you know, to our point about how the parties are differing on this, um, one thing that's that's a little bit shocking is that might be true when things actually are out in the open and when, um, you know, a, what, 130-page investigation has been done. But let's be clear, the thing that happened this week that people pay less att- attention to is the fact that Roberta Kaplan had to step down from the head of the Me Too organization, Time's Up. That's right. Because she was apparently working behind the scenes with some of the Cuomo folks to figure out how to navigate this early on. And it just reminds me of, um, you know, I read um, Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey's book about um, Harvey Weinstein. And you're like, oh, my God, David Boies, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who was a lawyer who was he was the lawyer in the recount movie <laughs> who yeah. was um, helping in the Florida recount to elect Al Gore. Um, big Democratic lawyer led a lot of the you know, pro marriage equality cases, he was helping Harvey Weinstein dig up dirt on, on his accusers. And so I do think, um, you know, we can pat ourselves on the back a little bit for getting him out, I suppose. And thank you, Tish James. But we also have to look around and say, like, who among us is helping, um, you know, trash accusers of people that we politically like? And the answer is a lot of people that you wouldn't expect. Yeah. Robbie Kaplan's a really great example. And for our listeners who don't know, she is E. Jean Carroll's lawyer in the lawsuit against Donald Trump. And I think that just underscores your point. Now that we're up to speed on three of the biggest stories of this week, God, it was such a big news week. Let's uh, talk about what we're watching. Um, I've got a trifecta of things that I'm watching. So I'm going to go first really quick and try and do a lightning round. Um, So, and those three things are uh, on Thursday, the Census Bureau released data that will be used to draw district lines. Uh, We've been waiting for this all year. So stay tuned both for a ton of news about gerrymandering and redistricting and the way Republicans are probably going to pick up seats in the 2022 midterms. And also stay tuned for another Drawing Democracy episode coming up on Politicology. The second story is something I'm watching very closely, uh, which in the future we're going to talk about on the show, but not today. There was a school in Atlanta Um, that allegedly segregated school children based on race. There's a lot that we don't know about this story. Um, So I'm just going to leave it there, but just plant a flag because I think you're going to hear more about this coming up. And finally, I want to mention this, the last minute battle over a cryptocurrency amendment uh, in the infrastructure negotiations that I think didn't get a lot of coverage, mostly because it's very difficult to understand. But the reason I'm following it is... The dynamics between the Bitcoin people and the non-Bitcoin people, uh, this was really the first time that the factions within the cryptocurrency community, and yes, there are factions, there are very, very fierce uh, factions. This was the first time they really came together in a grassroots kind of way um, and combined with the lobbying efforts of banks and venture capital firms who fund and hold large uh, stakes in a lot of the cryptocurrency companies. Um, all came together to lobby Congress doing something sort of uh, for the good of the entire otherwise discoordinate and decentralized community. And there are some members of Congress that actually hold cryptocurrencies, and there's even a crypto caucus. And those are the people that I think we should watch and and look to as we watch for signals for how um, regulation of crypto is going to evolve. So more on this topic soon. I just want to uh, I just want to note that there was a there was a really important skirmish that happened around amendments this week. I think Crypto Caucus is a great band name. It is a really should, great band name. Somebody should start like a grunge band called Crypto Caucus. <laughs> so I'm waiting for that. Listeners, take heed. <laughs> Lene, what are you watching? You know, I, for one, am um, always interested in the crazy amendments that come up in the budget reconciliation process. So for folks that um, don't stay up all night watching C-SPAN, um, these are the crazy rules where, you know, you can pass something by 50 votes, but you can also, as you're debating this budget reconciliation package, you also have to allow every senator to bring up any amendment they want. And it's the only time that can happen. And so people are just making things up. Like, I mean, writing it on a napkin, literal napkins, making things up. Some One side will do something else. Somebody will respond with something crazy. So it's super fun. Um, and you can probably go back and watch the C-SPAN footage if you'd like to see it all. But 
uh, I'm always scared of what's going to happen because those kind of messaging amendments mm. are always places where the Republicans put the Democrats in real trouble. And as a person who ha- tries to help Democrats win red and purple places, um, I'm terrified of the, this voterama that they call it because there's always something about sanctuary cities or, um, you know, the border or uh, abortion or something that just puts these folks in a really bad position. Well, this time the Republicans gave us a huge gift. And that was that Tommy Tuberville from uh, the great state of Alabama, um, he actually offered an amendment that said any uh, jurisdiction that defunds the police should lose funding. So this is an anti-defund this police amendment. Guess how many votes it got? 99. (laughs) Because nobody wants to defund the police. That's a made up thing. And the other person just wasn't there. Nobody voted against it. 99 senators. And do you know what they're all going to use in their ads? Thank you very much. Raphael Warnock, Mark Kelly, uh, all of our fun, uh, vulnerable incumbents that we need to defend in the Senate to keep that majority. They now have a vote on the record that said, I voted against defunding the police. And for that, I thank you, Tommy Tuberville. That is such a great look ahead story. Really important. Um, Al, what are you watching? Man, I'm watching space travel. And space exploration. I mean, what could be more exciting? You know, I've, uh, my wife's a lot more conservative when it comes to spending than I am. But mm-hmm. I wanted to sign up for that Virgin Air thing to just orbit the Earth, which I would think would be like a thing of a lifetime. But more seriously, talking about policy, you know, I think it's been a great thing that a lot of the costs of space exploration has moved to the private sector and that all these the multi-billionaires like Jeff Bezos and and Virgin, uh, you know, and and the founder of Virgin and and uh, and others have begun to, you know, f- more ego than anything else, but have begun to take this up and spend their own money. And uh, and there's never been a time when space exploration has not resulted in benefits uh, to us on Earth, and uh, whether it's in healthcare or uh, automobiles or anything else. And uh, and I think great things will happen to us Earthlings as a result of this space travel. I don't know whether NASA should be spending huge amounts of money on, on the short term based on all the needs we have on Earth. But I'm so glad these guys are taking up the slack because, uh, to me, part of uh, – you know, uh, part of the world adventures have always been important. If we didn't have adventure, we wouldn't have come up with the, you know, silk uh, road. We wouldn't have come up with discovering Americas. We wouldn't have come up with so many things. And now the next thing to explore is the universe, right? Or at least our solar system. And so I'm excited that we as a humanity have taken it up. There are other countries who are doing the same at uh, maybe a different scale, but I, I'm excited about space exploration. I'm excited about the benefits it could bring to us. And, uh, and I'm excited by the fact that at a time when we need so much to be spent domestically, we have guys with deep pockets being able to do this and let us enjoy it. Before I let you go, where can everybody find you on the internet, Al? Well, you can uh, go to social media and look at Al Cardenas. I'm on Twitter. I don't do much of uh, Facebook. That's more my Instagram and Facebook are my wife's terrain. <laughs> I'm, uh, <laughs> for for I'm, our listeners. I'm lacier than that. I'm a Twitter person. Tell, tell our listeners who your wife is because I don't think they know. <laughs> uh, my wife's Anna Navarro, who's, uh, you know, in the in the business of communicating like you all are. <laughs> we should have her uh, on the show. Tell her she's welcome anytime. Well, thank you. <laughs> Lene, where can everybody find you? I'm on Twitter at Lene Erickson and lots of research and fun messaging advice at thirdway.org. Beautiful. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. There are a number of ways you can help support this work and our mission. You can donate, which helps support the huge team and effort that goes into every Politicology episode on the main feed. Or you can join the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist, look further down the road than everyone else, and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. If you're not already in our Politicology Plus community, you can unlock today's Plus segment and much more at politicology.com slash plus. You can share this episode 
or one of your favorites with friends, family, or colleagues, podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth, and this helps us reach more people. You can rate five stars in the Apple Podcasts app and leave us a review there because this helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us as always at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.